I knew three things. I was not a man. I was not an Adventist. And I was lonely. I didn't have any other certainties. I also didn't believe that a partner or a date would ever accept the feminine reality of who I was. I was in a budding relationship with a girl I'd known from my southern days when I came out to my parents and moved out. Of course, I had to have the same conversation with her. She did not take it well either, but she was very attached and she wanted to make it work. We had been planning a weekend for her to visit for some time before this, and I convinced her to wait to make a decision until we could spend some time together in person, talking through the big life changes around me. I planned the perfect weekend. We went hiking to all the best views, watched her favorite movies, even went to her home church where she grew up on Saturday. And I knew that all of this was leading up to a difficult, but not hopeless, conversation. Saturday night, instead of having that conversation, she told me that she had spoken to several people that she trusted for advice, including Anne-Marie, and they all recommended she break up with me. Anne-Marie even convinced her to cut off any kind of contact with me. Without a chance to work through the million reasons Anne-Marie was wrong, she left and drove back to Chattanooga. That was the last grounding human connection I had. Lesson learned, I would never find love as me. I got on Tinder, but didn't mention who I was despite the painful and vicious fight I'd had to own that identity. Loneliness was winning. The summer season at work was ending, and the permanent position I had been promised was lost to a company that bought out our bid for the forest. I took a job an hour away in Greer, South Carolina, that paid two-thirds of what I had been making. My life was so very hard, but at no point did I want to return to Eric and Anne-Marie. Three meals of ramen a day, sleeping on the floor, and loneliness were more beautiful than any future that continued the abuse at home. I started a short-lived relationship with a girl I met on Bumble, who was everything I thought I deserved, and by that, I mean that we were in no way compatible, and in many ways she was controlling and overbearing, but my self-worth had never been lower. She was the best I could do in my mind. But we broke up on Thanksgiving Day, and I was alone again. This is the darkest, most difficult chapter in my life, and I've glazed over it because I didn't know how to talk about having housing insecurity, going to bed hungry, and the intense and incomparable aloneness I was experiencing. Are you going to stop listening if I spill every depressing detail of just how poor I was, of how bad life was, how close I was to being homeless? But it's a chapter I at least have to try to tell. It's so important to note that as the people around me who were supposed to support me instead abandoned me and destroyed my faith in myself, my faith in me was destroyed. This 
was rock bottom. But the bottom is where you start rising. And it was time to rise. There's more to this story, so keep listening to this short break. Welcome back to Girl Found Podcast. This is Evan Bates, and today with me I have Eli, and I have Shaylin King, a therapist in Greenville, Um, and one that I have had a few conversations with before, and when the topic of the psychology behind queerness um, kind of started moving around my head and coming up in conversations with Eli and with a few other people, I thought it would be cool to have a round table today and discuss uh, the concept of um, public queer identity and um, kind of the the thinking behind it. So thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Um, And if we could just go around the room and introduce ourselves. Hello, (laughs) I'm Eli. I have been on the show before. Um, but with a different name because I recently changed it. Um, I still work at the tea shop and I really like it there and I make tea and it makes me happy. And I live in Greenville. I'm best friends with Evie and that's about it. (laughs) And she won't tell you what her name previously was. You have to go back on the show and figure it out. It's a guessing game. (laughs) Do some detective work. Um, Hi, my name is Shailene. I am a licensed marriage and family associate, um, and I'm also a uh, alcohol and drug counselor in progress. Both of those two things will be done um, next June, which is very exciting for me. Um, I currently own and operate a group practice here in Greenville called Burkana Collective, um, and it's a mental health practice specifically dedicated towards LGBTQ, poly, and kink individuals and families. And that's about me. And I don't know of anyone else who does this in Greenville. There are a few other practitioners, such as like Amaryllis Counseling, but as far as um, people who specifically specialize and, and are pretty, I guess, open and forward on their marketing for it, uh, there's very few, yeah. Um, to give myself away a little bit, um, because I just signed that thing back there. Um, <laughs> When Caroline and I first had the discussion of coming out and all that that meant, um, we've talked a little bit about the rough patch that we had um, and trying to figure out what that meant for us. And Shailen was a big part of processing that. Um, And I remember when we we first reached the point where we knew that we needed to talk to somebody and we started doing the research for it, uh, there was precious few. 
Um, so I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful that you're doing that work in a city that has a big need for it. Yeah. So today I want to talk about um, a little bit of the psychology behind queerness. Um, and specifically uh, the way that we tell other people that we are queer. So, um, Eli, we kind of started or tried to talk about this last time on the podcast. Um, and there's a, there's a phrase that you have used with me before, and I was wondering if you'd be willing to share it. In your process of understanding who you are, um, there's been a little bit of a, an insecurity and a, a fear there. I was wondering if you would mind talking about it a little bit. Um, yes, I definitely, I can definitely say that my style has evolved very dramatically in the past year. Um, not really so much in changing the pieces that are in my wardrobe, but more like the confidence and the way that I wear them, um, because I'm poor and I do a lot of thrift shopping and I don't throw out clothes, but kind of just rearranging. But basically the insecurity that I've talk to Evie about a lot is that like looking not looking gay enough and feeling like I don't present to people in a way that can show which community I want to be around like I've I actually I haven't told you this but I actually had someone one of my co-workers um tell me that oh yeah when I first saw you when I first met you back when you had like really long bright blonde hair and like Whatever, I thought you were like um, a recent Bob Jones graduate that like their rebellion thing was getting their nose pierced in a really subtle, cute way. <laughs> I was like, you know, that kind of hurt a little bit. <laughs> First of all, my condolences Thank for you. being considered a, a recent Bob Jones grad. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, Shaylin, is this something that you've ever experienced? relationship and so that while I am 100% grateful for my partner and, and I wouldn't have changed the choices that I've made to get here um, there is often a deep seed of insecurity surrounding that in that uh, people often you know employ by erasure on me um, you know how can you be uh, gay when you're with a man um, how can you be poly if you're only with one person um, and so I think I similar to Eli, uh, really use wardrobe as a way to differentiate, differentiate myself with that. Um, sometimes when me and my partner go out, I will purposely look the gayest I possibly can. Um, not because I'm not comfortable in my relationship, but I don't want people to forget my queer identity. Um, and so that's something I definitely have struggled with, and a lot of my clients really struggle with that. Uh, it's funny, every time Caroline and I go out, she asks me before we leave, how gay do I look? <laughs> um, <laughs> but I have also had that struggle um, in the many public identities that I've had. Um, I know that um, as a, a um, bi 
person presenting masculine uh, a few years ago, there was a struggle for me that I was straight presenting. I looked like a straight white man. <laughs> and, oh, the worst. And um, I, they, I avidly tried to avoid it. Um, and then later, as a, a non-binary presenting person as I was trying to work through these identities and figure out where I was um, there was a, a strong pressure to appear androgynous um, that I wasn't non-binary unless I didn't look like a boy um, and so there's there was that mental process of adjusting the way I looked on the outside to make other people see the way I felt on the inside um, and then now, um, I find myself struggling with the, um, the pressure and the need to appear hyper-feminine. Um, you know, most days I will not wear something, um, uh, just because it doesn't look quite feminine enough, even though it's comfortable, even though I think that I like the way that I look, all of these things. Um, and I made a comment to Caroline once that, um, I'm learning how to be how to look like a badass on the outside and still be feminine versus looking and feeling like a badass and being masculine. Um, the way I was able to, to put it into words, but basically this, I don't have to be hyper-feminine. I can look outdoorsy or um, represent my job, which is very non-feminine, and still be feminine. So... Jalen, why do you think that is? Um, well, I really think that it's not just one issue. It's a, it's a culmination of issues, right? When we look at the idea of masculine versus feminine, um, we begin to see the problems already, right? Um, gender roles have been put in place for a long time um, by patriarchal structures. And with that is born this idea of uh, straight passing inherently. Right, because if you are straight, if you are cisgender, then you must fall into either uh, hyperfeminine or ultramasculine. And we see lots of mental health issues arise from that problem in of itself. Um, when you enter queer and gender nonconforming identities into it, into the problem, into the kind of melting pot of this patriarchal structure, uh, even more problems arise in that. Uh, queer people delude themselves into thinking, okay, yes, I am inherently off of the binary, uh, yes, I am inherently queer, but my inner queerness must match this weird binary? Um, and that's impossible, because queer is not on the binary, and so you cannot fit on the binary no matter how hard you try. Um, and so there's often a two-pronged approach that I use to kind of identify these things and um, it's looking at, okay, where is the dysphoria coming from? Is it coming from external sources or is it coming from internal sources? Um, and a lot of the times, because of these two constructs working together, we see it happening in both areas, right? We see this idea of in order to be trans, or be gay, uh, we have to fit these stereotypes. Um, but I think the important thing to ask is where are these stereotypes coming from? 
are they things that are queer created and curated and owned or are these things put on to us by cisgender and um, heterosexual people that's a very good point um my solution in you know as as i'm fighting this day to day um has been so far to some days just give in because i know that i'll be more confident in myself if i dress a way that i think that people will appreciate which i'm not saying is good or healthy or what i should be doing i'm saying that's what i am doing um but making little changes where i can um and you know for me that looks like um not wearing something form-fitting and choosing something a little bit looser uh intentionally and forcefully knowing that it's not going to suddenly change the way that people look at me just from that one thing um Eli, how has how have you approached this dilemma of not feeling like you look gay enough? Um, what what's been the solution for you? I've I've been thinking about that lately, and really, what I started doing was very intentionally, like when I put on an outfit and looked in the mirror. My first step was to stop asking other people how I looked. And as soon as I stopped doing that at all, that helped. Um, And then noticing that when I'm choosing what to wear, asking myself, do I feel good? Is this comfortable? Do I like how I look? Not like, oh, if someone saw me in this outfit, would they think this or would they think that? So like, kind of my answer to the question has been to stop worrying about that in that way and then just like taking a step back and wearing what I feel like wearing and then see what happens um and I think doing that as a result I have started dressing in a way that signals me as queer I guess the biggest thing was getting my hair cut but um but I guess um just by choosing to stand out if I feel like standing out instead of like worrying about oh like do I look like how do I look in this um because I tend to be naturally without anyone holding me down I tend to be very extra I like things to match in really weirdly specific ways like I always try to match my socks to my outfit um which is something that I feel like you just naturally bully people for like it's just such an easy thing to get bullied for um and so the fact that I do that unapologetically sounds stupid but like to me that's one thing that's like a little step of like not giving a fuck is like yeah I'm gonna match my socks to my jacket (laughs) um but yeah and then hearing you talk about dysphoria I think that actually like I'm still trying to figure out what I how I feel about my gender and all of that stuff but I think that me consciously choosing how I talk to myself about my clothes and how I look has brought up a lot of feelings of like oh like how do I feel about that (laughs) like wait I've never thought about that that because I've been too busy being like oh do I look good or not 
and this is a podcast and you can't tell, but they look pretty good, so I think it's working. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, so is there anything... I've also considered that there might be another possibility to why we do this, and I sometimes wonder if it's a matter of safety for us. Um, and it sounds counterintuitive. Why would we um, choose to single ourselves out um, and look different if that might single us out for criticism or prejudice or even danger, you know, violence. Um, and yet we still do. Um, because I think that there's an innate safety in appearing in a way that other people see and go, oh, they're one of us. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that there's a, a, a safety thing and then also like a scarcity thing. You know, when we are living in areas where we feel like we have to be in the closet, um, that doesn't mean that uh, the humanness inside of us, that we don't want friends, that we don't want lovers, that we don't want community members. And so I think that uh, queer people have really designed this uh, coding this little like helpful like oh you got oat milk in your coffee like oh you have an eyebrow slit we have these tiny little things as a, a signal to be like hey I'm queer like I'm safe to talk to you're not going to get hate crimes by me but even more importantly it helps you look at like I guess not more but equally important it helps you find other people like you so that you're not just like oh wow I have this crush on this person and I don't know or I'm alone in my community and I don't know anyone else who is like me. Now we have this very small, subtle system of like, okay, like there's some cuffs in the jeans, there's some colored hair, like these are matching up. It's not 100%, but we're a hell of a lot closer to identifying people who are safe and like us through those little coding things. And I think that plays a, a big role in, in safety, in community, and a little bit in like advocacy too. You know, there, the, an eyebrow slit may not seem like a brave move, but that could be the bravest move a thing somebody does in their life to solidify and to, to really embrace who they are. They're like, okay, well, I can't come out because I will get kicked out or I will lose my job or I will get hate crimes. But you know what I can do? I can wake up today and I can cuff my jeans. So it's, it's this little bit of activism for themselves. Small rebellions. Small rebellions lead to large things. Yes. Yeah. Small rebellions lead to large things. I like that. Um, are there any other reasons you can think why we would want other people to know that we are not straight? So besides this issue of um, finding our identity in how we dress out outwardly like we've talked about, um, this way of signaling to others that we are a safe space. Are there any other reasons that you have found um, why you dress in a way that people would go, oh, they're not married to a man, are they? Um, 
I mean, I think that it has to do with, you know, safety, like you said, uh, finding community, um, but inherently too, like, identity and community and safety all relates to how high of a functioning person you are, right? Um, and I think humanity's goal on the individual is to lead a life that is, like, fulfilling. And so I think, again, with that, you know, small rebellion theme in my mind, coding yourself to look queer, um, doing these different things to present queer, allows for you to do the internal work of accepting yourself, right? Um, a lot of the times um, when I have clients uh, who are in transition, the first little bit of transition is really focused on how do I look? Uh, how do I make my hair shorter? How do I make my hair longer? How do I lower my voice? How do I make my voice higher? Like all of these really outside things. Um, and while those are important, they're not the most important thing. But without that, that outward piece, I think that a lot of trans and, and gender nonconforming individuals feel like they can't do the inner work. And the inner work is the most important thing. So I think of this queer coding as like the catalyst for you feeling confident in yourself and loving yourself and believing in yourself. Um, and then as a result, that lowers things like mental health and substance use and suicide. So I think it's also kind of low-key a survival thing as well. So you're saying Doc Martens are at the bottom of Bre or Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> and, yeah. then, and then self-actualization is at the top. Yes. And, yes. and boofing progesterone is somewhere in the middle. Somewhere. Okay, yeah. Maybe on the <laughs> okay. 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 Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, is there anything that you'd like to add, Eli, on um, this this topic, just in general? Sure. Yeah, actually, that made me think, just talking about community and finding community through, like, signaling and coding, queer coding through clothes and style. Actually, like, what has made me feel safer and has been actually finding the community in Greenville because for months when I first moved here I not only did I feel insecure about how I looked and like everybody automatically assuming that I'm straight and like all of all of that um but I also didn't have a community yet so all of that insecurity was just like magnified by not having anyone around me to that is queer to say no of course you're gay and that's okay like you know like just like missing the casual community where everybody knows the the stereotypes of the costumes and stuff and having to explain that to other people was not only exhausting but like invalidating so I didn't have that and so talking about community has reminded me that oh yeah now it's I've come a long way because I actually have found the, the physical spaces in Greenville that you can go and look around the room and notice okay yeah like I can see that most people here are queer in some way or at least queer friendly so yeah I guess just adding that it's been a lot of factors coming together of like learning how to look at myself differently and one is just actually finding safety in community have you found that um have you found that as you queer code more, uh, your, I don't know, 
have you found that as you queer code more, your community has opened up wider? Or do you think that spending time in the community has opened your community wider and given you confidence to queer code more? Like, which, which, which is the chicken, which is the egg? I think that I found the community by really looking for it. And that was through dressing a certain way, but it was also through literally looking for it. Like going around Greenville and looking around at my surroundings and following certain places on social media. Like if I saw there was like a rainbow anything, I would like follow it on social media and like see where that took me. And eventually finding queer friendly businesses has opened up to finding queer friendly like events and stuff like that um and I don't and I wouldn't have found that if I hadn't been looking for it which is the point like Greenville is not the friendliest space once you're in once you find it then it now it totally all of a sudden Greenville seems like such a queer friendly place to me but for my first six months here I was like geez there's like street preachers everywhere like I can't, like, find anyone that, like, I can't go to a restaurant and see that those are two gay men on a date. Like, I can't find that anywhere. So, I'm not really, so I guess that came first. And then, now that I've been spending time with people, I guess it's opened up more. I don't know, that's hard. I think that being around more queer people has made me relax and not worry about it as much because I think most of the insecurity of like not looking gay enough is like how am I going to find the queer community if I don't look gay like that's where it was really coming from and so now that I've found the queer community I don't feel this like pressure to look a certain way which has made me freer to look however I want to look which has made me look gayer (laughs) so that's that (laughs) gotcha so you're saying it's not a chicken or an egg it's a cycle like it's it, it's yeah. it's like come it, full circle. Yeah, intensifying like through multiple factors, and I think, and also I've noticed that I don't know, I I like I like how the queer community around here is pretty small. Like I like being able to know people, and like even if oh maybe I like don't know that person's name, but I've seen them at queer night, or I've seen them that bar bar gray or wherever and so actually not not having like strangers that look gay versus having people that are gay that I recognize makes a huge difference to me personally (laughs) like just kind of like knowing instead of just guessing everybody being scary and judgy in my head you went from having a perceived audience that was hostile to having a, an audience that you knew was safe. Exactly, yeah. Um, it's funny you mentioned the street preachers because the other day I was walking uh, towards the tea shop that you work at, actually, <laughs> um, and they were out in full force, um, as usual. And I can't remember the topic, but I, I it was incredibly insensitive and just... It, it, it made my skin crawl as they're like speaking into megaphones um, because they're not just regular street preachers. They're like, they have, they're not actually Christian. They're like, it's weird. Um, it's a weird vibe. Uh, but as I walked by and went, Whoa, I'm really uncomfy. 
there were two um, clearly Twinkie men standing on the opposite corner. And one is like holding a, a phone camera up, like trying to be discreet and he's recording them. And they're like standing beside each other, like too close to just be friends. And uh, I stop and I just kind of, they're very tall, so I kind of, like, tiptoe up to them, but say really quietly as I walk by, I'm like, do they think this actually works? Um, and it was a moment that was really representative for me of the queer community in Greenville, the fact that the voice that everyone's hearing is this alt-right, barely Christian, wearing some kind of maybe bulletproof bulletproof vest and like militaristic clothing while shouting into a bullhorn about the destruction of the you know nuclear family um and then the the queer community is on the side making fun of it there the whole time recognizing each other but not having a voice um and i know that this is something that you have put a lot of work into shaylin um, and you have a, a really big place in your heart for. So I was wondering, how do you want to see our city improve in a queer community? What do you see for the future? Yeah, I love this topic so much um, because I really feel like even though our community is really small, in my mind, I'm kind of seeing like a little uh, queer renaissance happening, you know, with the... Um, uh, with Amaryllis and with 864 Pride and Pride Link and the LGBT Chamber and all of these names and, and myself included, we've only been here for a couple of years, you know? Um, myself, I'm entering into my second year of private practice, right? Um, I could be wrong, but I feel like Pride Link's only been around for three or four years. Yeah. The Chamber just opened up, you know, this year. And so I am feeling really encouraged by the amount of uh, queer nonprofits and queer businesses just kind of like shoving in and making space um, because I think that is ultimately really the answer is uh, queer individuals while we are very powerful and amazing and beautiful people uh, we can't accomplish what we need to and what we want to accomplish as a community without brave businesses you know um, because we live in a capitalistic environment, uh, we kind of need capitalism on our side for this, uh, to be able to create a space that is free and, and open and um, evolving. And so I guess my biggest uh, dream is uh, for the community as a whole is to see more queer owned businesses in Greenville. Um, and I think we're starting to see that happen specifically in West Greenville. Um, and that's exciting because I would like that to be a gay neighborhood. Yes. Okay, yes. <laughs> I wanted I've said this before and I'll say it again. Yes. <laughs> right. Every every major city really has a neighborhood, and if we look at the demographics and and kind of where Greenville is heading, we're supposed to be like another Charlotte. And so I think a very big part of becoming another Charlotte is creating a community of queer people where they have their own spaces, their own voices, their own political agendas. Um, so we continue to push, you know, this food city into a uh, overall affirmative and accepting community. Um, a lot of the times marginalized voices work together 
Um, we have a lot of problems with intersectionality, but I think overall, when there's one marginalized community doing better, it encourages and assists other marginalized communities to get better. So um, I think as the queer community grows, hopefully we can then be a helping hand to our black and indigenous folks. And as they grow, hopefully they can be a, a helping hand to our queer folks. And I really wanna see that partnership because so long the partnership has just been white men. We added white women and now it's time to add people of color and queer people into the mix. And I think when we do that, Greenville will be amazing and beautiful and everything that everyone wants it to be and not just, you know, the cotton mill it used to be. So if this were a podcast about Greenville, I'd bring up Unity Park right now, but it's not. It's a podcast about queerness, so that's the topic I'll try to stay on. Um, But as far as um, the outward decisions that we here in this room have made to represent and publicly affirm who we are on the inside, um, do you wish you could go back to the privileged version of you? That's an interesting question. I can start. I don't know what I'm going to say, but I can start. Um, that's, that's kind of a, that's an interesting question in a lot of ways, but for me, I kind of do every time I go home to my family. So like every time I go home, and home's not that far for me, it's just an hour and a half away, but every time I do, I feel like I'm stepping into a whole nother world Like I, that is also incredibly familiar and privileged because like that's like just growing up where I did and with who I did, even though we didn't always have a lot of money, there was still so much privilege just being white and like having the neighbors and connections and like having to shake hands with all the southern old men and old white ladies and talk about sorority stuff and church and like all of this like all of the things that go along with being a privileged white person in the south and so I I feel like I'm still in the process of pulling away from that like I think for me to ask about like, do I wish I could go back? I Like, I kind of do. And it's not intentional. Like, I would like to be my full self all of the time. But I don't because of family and because it's so complicated and difficult and confusing and uncomfortable. And I only see them not very often. So it feels like, what's the point of trying to completely be myself 100% of the time when I could just like take a small amount of time out of the year and be somebody else instead of causing problems for a lot of people that I don't want to deal with. So for me, yeah, I, I guess I wish I didn't have to go back. I mean, I guess it's not that I have to, like I could completely be radical about it, but I feel like I have to. So. so you're saying you wish you didn't feel the need to regress for the people around you. It's yeah. fair. Yeah. And it's, 
And it is, like, I don't know, I can play it off as, like, well, yeah, like, that is a safety concern as far as, like, but then I struggle internally. I'm like, oh, well, is it safety and me, like, hiding my queerness out of safety? Or is it, like, just the discomfort of letting go of privilege that I don't want to let go? And so that's something that I ask myself a lot and I haven't figured out yet and still think about. What about you? Um, I feel like in regards to my privilege, I have a lot more privilege than most um, in that I have something that I like to call Canadian privilege. (laughs) (laughs) So I uh, am from Canada. My family is Canadian. Um, And so while there are their fair share of uh, conservative viewpointed people in Canada, um, my family, the nuclear family I moved down to the States with, has always been open and accepting and affirming and has never really put me in a box. Um, And so I really had the privilege of never feeling like I had to hide my queerness. Um, The thing that made me want to hide my queerness was uh, growing up Catholic, and that was something that I made the decision to do and not my parents. Um, And so the reason why I didn't come out until my early 20s was because of my affiliation with um, the Catholic Church and nothing to do with uh, my family in general. And so when I kind of cast off the, I guess, Christian privilege of the South, um, then I really felt like all the other wonderful privileges I had, being white, uh, being upper middle class, um, and having that Canadian privilege of not being scared to be queer, um, I never felt like I had to run away from that. And I'm extremely thankful for the privilege that I do have because um, it has allowed me to create spaces for marginalized people and to be the voice of people that don't have that privilege. Um, So I guess for me, I think the only privilege I ever walked away from was Christianity. Um, And when I got rid of that, I felt like all the other um, social constructs that have kind of like supported me and got me further in life, I've really been able to kind of turn around as the ultimate fuck you and be like, hey, like, I'm going to use all of this and I'm going to funnel it directly into the places that don't have privilege. And so I wouldn't want to get rid of my privilege because it's allowed me to do that. I would just want to get rid of privilege in general so that we're all on a playing field that is equal. And we're not there yet, so I need to use my superpowers to help all these little marginalized superpowers thrive. So until then, we'll rely on the Doc Martens and the eyebrow slits and the cuff jeans. Well, thank you so much, Shaylin, for agreeing to talk with me, letting me invade your little sanctum over here for the day. Yes. Uh, And thank you, Eli, for coming with me and for giving voice to to some of the feelings and experiences that you have had. Um, This has been a really good conversation, and I appreciate everyone's candor. And um, I feel like we've voiced some things that a lot of people will resonate with. And I I think that um, this episode reaches a lot of people. So thank you.